Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. There are times when your life crosses paths with an individual who intrigues you and you know there is more to their story. You also have an inkling that someday you will collaborate with them in some way and your stories will combine. This is how I felt when I met Kristen Thiel at a youth ministry conference. She is a unique individual with a ton of passion for justice and inclusion. Kristen works as a coordinator of discipleship and congregational care at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Largo, Florida. Before Florida, Kristen was a youth and children's minister and had an emphasis in outreach ministry in Las Vegas. She created a youth ministry called GTS, Growth Through Service. Her ministry ran a weekly park outreach meal for middle school kids with food insecurities. A food pantry for youth made 30,000 kits for people experiencing homelessness did Feel Good Fridays with Nevada Partnership for Homeless Youth, holiday meals for kids experiencing homelessness, and more. GTS is a youth ministry that is socioeconomically diverse, racially diverse, and openly inclusive of the LGBTQ community. She partnered with communities that, and helped to coordinate and lead mission trips in the States and internationally. She has spoken at many conferences for women of the ELCA, about sex trafficking, serving our neighbors, and creating ministry around serving. In 2020, she and her former youth group spoke at a conference with Father Gregory Boyle from Homeboy Industries. Homeboy Industries has the largest gang outreach ministry in the world. Kristen hears clearly the call in Micah 6:8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It is a pleasure for me today to be talking with Kristen. Kristen, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so clearly, uh, it's clear that you have a heart for service, right? Because you've done so many things. And I could tell that instantly uh, when I met you, that you just had this fire about you, that you were just like, I am going to live out what I feel is really important and to see, you know, God's love in the world. And that is justice, right? For you. Uh, so could you tell us a bit then about some of those experiences you have had around service and then how has that changed you? Yeah, I think it started honestly when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So originally before I grew up in Las Vegas and I started, I was originally in Chicago with my family and then we moved to Las Vegas and I did middle school, high school and all that later on. But in Chicago, my dad worked the graveyard and then my mom worked day shift mm -hmm. and they would park their cars underneath this bridge and there were two gentlemen there. Mm -hmm. And as kids, we always heard about the two gentlemen. And these two gentlemen were experiencing homelessness. So my dad would get off work and he would go to McDonald's and buy them breakfast items. When it was winter time, my mom would take us out and we would 
look for coats or gloves or things like that. So this was a conversation we had around the kitchen table, right? About mm-hmm. these two gentlemen. Hmm. Well, then one day, my sister and I are being ourselves, which means we're giving my mother a hard time. And we decided it's a good idea to play soccer inside the house because it was winter and we couldn't play outside. Yeah. Seems like a good thing to do. Great thing to do. (laughs) So we kick the soccer ball and we of course break stuff. Mm -hmm. And my mom now is late to work because if anybody knows driving to Chicago, you have to hit a certain hour. And if you're a couple of minutes late, you're going to hit mad rush hour traffic. Mm -hmm. So my mom cannot find a spot underneath the bridge in her usual parking place. Mm. So my mom parks a block away. And that day, our vehicle, her vehicle gets stolen. Oh, wow. So my mom then has to take the L, the train, into work. And one day, my dad got the two gentlemen breakfast, brought it down, and they're talking, and they asked where Deb, my mom, where her car is, because they haven't seen her recently. And he goes, oh, well, her car got stolen. And he explained what happened with us kids. And then they asked a really peculiar question. They asked, where did she park? Hmm. Goes, hmm that's kind of weird. So he goes, well, she had to park a block away because she couldn't find her normal spot. And they go, oh, that makes sense. Huh. And my dad was not understanding, he was very confused and goes, what do you mean? And they go, well, we watch your cars every day. Every day while you go to work, we watch your cars. And if people come up to steal them or other things, we intervene. Oh, fascinating. So for years, these two gentlemen were watching over my parents' cars and providing for us and serving us and caring for us. Hmm. And even when we moved, they used all the money they had to buy our family a plant. A plant? A plant. Oh, how sweet. And so early on in my childhood, this was very formative in my faith in just seeing the ways in which we love others, right? And we're called to love our neighbor. And everyone has this ability. And I think it's so fitting to take a time to slow down, right? Because if we truly believe that God is in each person, right? And the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. is at work, then how are we seeing that? And so one of the many things I love about serving is it invites us to see God. Hmm. And so throughout the years, I have continually seen that. I've continually seen that in ministry and um, GTS, the program that I created in Las Vegas, Growth Through Service. It was that same concept of we're going to reach out, we're going to serve. And then by doing so, we're loving our neighbor and we also are loving ourselves as we learn and see more about God. And so it was just this beautiful experience all throughout my ministry too, that I've continually been able to see God show up. I mean, the kids in Las Vegas and our youth ministry are very socioeconomic diverse. And what I mean by that is we had students experiencing homelessness. Yeah. And we had students who would ride the bus 
45 minutes one way to serve at Park Outreach and they would make comments, well, it's important for me to be here because I know what it's like to be hungry. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so there's these beautiful moments, right, that are really eye-opening that to me, they're just holy moments where you really get to grasp and witness God's love at work. Mm. So that is to me the beautiful passion about serving is we are called to love our neighbor. We are called into community. Yeah, that's amazing. I think that is such a beautiful gift that I think you were given as a child, right? To be able to witness that and to experience it and to have your family, even your parents model that for you of just, I just think there's so many times where the homeless community, right, is seen as not human. Mm -hmm. You know, and often I think people grow fearful of individuals and we don't take time to understand their stories or um, I always like to say too that I believe that there's fear there because you know at any moment really anybody could get into a position where they experience homelessness right so it's almost it's it's a moment of recognizing I think sometimes the fragility of our structures and systems that surround us, right? Mm -hmm. I grew up in a very upper middle-class town where I didn't get to see those things or I was blind that they were in my backyard, if you were to say. So mm -hmm. I think that is, is a beautiful thing that you were able to experience that and then be able to to take what you've learned and to be able to help others see that as well. Absolutely. What are the, then the misconceptions that you, um, that people have then of those without homes? So I think there's a bunch of different misconceptions. One of them is that people are lazy, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> we also have this thought process of worthy poor and unworthy poor. Oh, yeah. So, and what I mean by that is we classify it of, well, this person can get services, but this person can't get services because, oh, they have problems with addiction or alcohol mm -hmm. and things like that. So there is biases that are thrusted onto communities, which then I like to ask questions of, oh, so you just think people experiencing homelessness or alcoholics or addicts or things like that. Have you never seen a rich or famous person who has a problem with addiction? Yeah. Or let's look at lawyers. Lawyers, their occupation has a very high rate of having an issue with alcoholism. Hmm. But yet we don't put them into this category of unworthy. Yeah. And that's very true. And so there's whole different issues with that, right? Of even misconceptions. And so in Las Vegas, there are 15,000 youth experiencing homelessness. Holy cow. 15,000. 15,000. 15, so wow. I can tell you stories of youth who came out as being a part of the LGBT plus community 
mm-hmm. and were then kicked out. Right. I have stories of kids who were sexually abused, who left their home or physically abused. Also families who during the pandemic had nowhere to go. So they, the people that they were staying with was not able to stay with anymore and they're experiencing homelessness. Also kids couch surfing during the pandemic. People Mm -hmm. didn't realize early on in the pandemic, all the shelters were shut down. Yeah, Shelters were at capacity. And then one form of homelessness that youth in particular uses couch surfing. So a process of staying from friends to friends to friends. Well, during the pandemic, nobody wanted people in their home. Right because of the virus and being unsafe, I get that. But so there are all these complicated issues and we really have to start unpacking what the biases are and hearing people's stories mm-hmm. and really rethinking how we think about at-risk populations and then how God is calling us to love them. Right. That's an important element in all of this. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, so I'm in Sacramento and I will tell you the, the homeless population has increased so significantly just mm-hmm. within like the past three years. Um, and also whenever I go to the Bay area, it's just, it astounds me to see how many tent cities there are mm-hmm. and different things like that. And, you know, and I think about the fact that how the housing market is just so incredibly expensive out here where I'm just like, how is anybody (laughs) like being able to find housing, which clearly many aren't right. Because I think that's one of the reasons why um, there's so much more of an increase in homelessness, but it's also very interesting to hear people's viewpoints on it. When you get on social media and you're in your own you know, neighborhood thread and to hear the comments and everything about people say. And I think, um, where do you think our society then needs to go in this area to help change or to provide more services and to change the way that we think oftentimes or have these biases? Like how do we help people look at our biases and how do we help change those? I think we have hard conversations, mm-hmm. right? And we lean into those hard conversations with empathy for our neighbors. Mm-hmm. And that requires all of us to not be nice, right? Mm-hmm. And to have these conversations. And that means having these conversations at church, right? And yeah. in sermons. And what does this mean? Because we are shying away from these conversations, but there's, there's real harm going on and emergencies going on that we really need to address and kind of debunk our own biases. And I think housing, they're affordable housing, there are areas there are no affordable housing. So someone on minimum wage cannot afford homes and people do not understand that. And I, and I give this example, uh, young adults, I had many young adults who four people in a two bedroom apartment, right? Mm -hmm. And not in a great area. 
still was charged quite a bit. And they would even make comments of, you know, Kristen, Sundays, we have to turn our lights on in the kitchen and we go back to our rooms and then we come out later. You go, wait, what do you mean you come back out later? And they're like, oh, well, because our apartment is infested with cockroaches. And so we have to go to our kitchen and turn the lights on and then go back to our bedroom to wait for all the cockroaches to disperse. Oh my gosh. And so again, hearing stories, hearing what people are going through and understanding that this is not a simple cut and dry answer. Mm -hmm. And there's a thing of systemic generational homelessness. Oh, right. And that also has to be addressed. And really it comes back to communities who are impoverished. Like all these things we're not addressing. So there really needs to be conversations about policy change, people voting, getting involved with that. Mm -hmm. And so it's a lot of conversation and dialogue and doing the work to do the research and have all these conversations and dialogue. How have your youth then when you were in Vegas, uh, how... How did this impact them the way that you taught them how to serve and be with their neighbors? How did that impact them? I think it impacted them in multiple different ways. Obviously, I can't speak for them, mm-hmm. but there were things that big moments that they would say or relate to or things that were very eye-opening for me. For example, one of them is we did an annual Thanksgiving Mm lock-in. And again, raising awareness of the complexity of people experiencing homelessness. So the drop-in center for Nevada Partnership for Homeless Youth, wonderful organization, is closed on Thanksgiving Day, right? Mm And so kids experiencing homelessness don't necessarily have a place to go. So we would make food when I first found out, well, then I'm sorry, what do all the kids do in the shelters or things like that? Right. They go, well, you know, they either have to make something themselves or go to fast food or figure it out. And so it was going to the group and saying, hey, how would you guys feel if we spent the night at church and We made food for all the safe houses and then made breakfast for Vegas Rescue Mission and did all these other things. And they said, great, we'd love to do it. And it was brought up to families, hey, if you're you're able to, kids are welcomed here in this space and at this time and things like that. So probably one of our, our large events, like, you know, kids, volunteers, huge event that we put on and so the kids worked really hard all Wednesday and then would wake up at like three in the morning on Thursday to start doing everything and preparing it all and we're cleaning up and I will always remember this the first year we're cleaning up and I'm exhausted at this Mm -hmm. point I had started work at 8 a.m on Wednesday it is now three o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday. I've not been home. I still have to go to like my family's house for Thanksgiving and different things like that. And 
this uh, young person is vacuuming the floor and he's amazing and has done all these things and like, what can I do to help and all this. And he comes up and he's like, this was really cool. Awesome. Great. Mm-hmm. He's like, no mama bear. This was really cool. Mm-hmm. Cool, man. Heard you, heard you the first time. <laughs> cool. Great. And you know, not getting it. And then he starts sharing, yeah, this was really cool because I know what it's like not to have a Thanksgiving. Mm. I know what it's like not to have food. So I don't know if it's, again, anything I taught them Mm -hmm. other than it was God working through them in these very holy moments of the ways in which, again, they were growing through service. Mm the ways their faith was growing, the ways that they were serving others and the ways that I was growing along with them. It was very eye-opening experience. And I, that's what I think the invitation of serving and loving our neighbor does. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's a recognizing a need and being willing to show up to yeah. work on that. And I think if so many of us don't show up, And I think that that is where all of us need to grow, you know, in terms of we get, I think, and I'm including myself obviously in this, but we get to a point where we get so consumed with our little, little lives and forget to look beyond our little lives to see, you know, what's in front of us. Um, And so we often ignore things, you know, and especially, you know, during the holidays, that during the holidays too, we're like, well, uh, we have to make sure our meal is perfect. And we forget the fact that there's others who don't get that meal. And part of that holiday is also being able to recognize what we have and be thankful for it, but then also sharing. So I think that's really good. But first, I just want to acknowledge that you said mama bear. Is that what they called you? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what, that's what the kids, that's probably one of my most honored uh, names I've ever been given, but they would uh, call me mama bear. That's so sweet. Very, it was very sweet, very nice, but they, uh, they would say, it was funny. We were, we were going on a, a mission trip and this, this mom was hesitant at first of like, can Kristen handle all these youth and then like there's a there's a lot going on mm-hmm. and the other mom's response who was there because it, it was a, a family and aunt type of thing the other aunt responded and she was laughing and one of the kids was like mama bear she may seem all nice but she'll cut you like <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, yeah. She's a badass. (laughs) Very much. uh, She is loving, compassionate, kind, and caring. Mm -hmm. But you cross her and you cross like her and one of the kids. I will. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fine line. Fine line. (laughs) So what is one of the things since you've done so much work with youth and have been able to be with them in these really intimate and wonderful ways? What continues to show up for them that you think the world needs to pay attention to Mm. in terms of their needs? Or what have you been recognizing these last 
few years? I think there's consistently been a bunch of different things. Um, some of those being one is belonging. Mm-hmm. Young people are searching for belonging, right? Yeah, 100%. And a permission for them to be themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't need to change who I'm going to be. I can show up and belong and be who God is calling me to be. Mm-hmm. Another thing that is a consistent theme is uh, emotions. And, and this goes for both people and young people is that we are feelings, we, we are beings that feel, but we tend to suppress that. And so even the young people I worked with, they had a lot of experiences in trauma, in pain. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we're taught, and again, it's out of survival, right? To suppress those feelings. And adults do that. I mean, like, I, I, I don't know of a person that, that has not done that at one point in their life. So to me, it was very important as an adult to create spaces where we're going to process our feelings that are given to us by God. Mm-hmm. Because the more we hold our feelings in our bodies, because you feel your feelings in your body, they're going to show up in stress. They're going to show up in other ways and anxiety, and they're going to have a huge effect on our life. So God gives us these feelings for a reason. Let's process them. Let's rumble with them. If you don't want to process them right now, that's cool, man. But when you're ready, we can circle back to them. So feelings was a common, common thing. Um, Another one was connection. Mm-hmm. having someone show up and care for them like is really one of the most biggest things like people would always ask me because we had a wide spectrum of adult leaders and there's a lot of cross-generational work going on which I think is is great and mm-hmm. so you'd have people I'd have people ask me you know well can do you think I can like come help or, or do anything or things like that and I go well are you open? Are you, and going over like inclusion, right? Like, Mm -hmm. are you open and inclusive? Are you willing to have training? Are you willing to have a background check and all these other things? But also, are you willing to authentically show up as yourself and listen? Yeah. And ask them questions and care about who they are as a person and not who you want them to be. Mm -hmm. And so that's, to me, one of the, the biggest things is they're really looking for that space of connection. And then finally, love. Mm-hmm. I mean, so those were the elements that came up over and over and over again of doing 10 years of this work. Right. Uh, just this morning, uh, we heard on the news about another shooting, right? And the kids, we had like a small house. So they overheard this and they're like, what is that about, mom? And so with the nature of my work, right? I decided to talk to my kids about the things they ask (laughs) and to be honest with them. And I'm like, you know what? I go, I think we have an issue in our, in our world where many of us haven't developed coping skills and we haven't been taught how to deal with our painful feelings. And so I said, so one of the reasons why you get annoyed with me (laughs) is because I say things when you get mad and sad about wanting to try to talk about it, learning how to move your body, 
finding ways. I said, you know, this is why I encourage you to either draw, to go for a run, to write it in a journal. And I was like, because you guys, our emotions are big. And when we feel them and they don't feel good, uh, we have to learn how to process them and get them out of our bodies. And I was like, and when we don't, they stay there, they grow and they can make us sick. They manifest. Yeah. And people have no idea. Yeah. And I go, and so that is why too, um, it's, oh, you need to figure out how to be bored because I was like, you guys have struggle. You struggle when you're bored. And that is, you need to learn how to work through that struggle. Because, you know, with the pandemic and screen time and stuff, like a lot of the times we are checking out, right? Everyone's checking out, looking on a screen, all these different things. And so I'm like, we can't check out all the time. You're angry. You got to feel it. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. So I'm going to continue to be annoying, but it's because I love you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Like, this is where we're at right now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because you care. Yeah. Okay, so not just I'm going to switch topics. Yeah. Um, since we met at the youth uh, ministry conference, mm -hmm. one of the things too that stood out to me when I met you was that you ha didn't have any hair, right? Mm -hmm. And sadly, in our cu culture, for those who identify as women, when uh, there is a lack of hair, people that, you know notice more or pay more attention to that. So. Would you be willing to tell us a bit about how you had lost your hair and then what did that teach you about beauty standards? Mm -hmm. And then how did people treat you? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to share about that. So I led mission trips, partnering with communities internationally. One of them was to El Salvador on a medical mission trip. Mm -hmm. And I've done that for many years. I have a low immune system because mm -hmm. I have quite a number of autoimmune diseases. Mm. So it was two years ago, I had gotten back, my team and I had gotten back from El Salvador. And about a month later, my hair started falling out. Mm. It was actually one night out with girlfriends and we're eating and all of a sudden, a chunk of my hair fell out and was on the table. And I remember one of my friends goes, girl, your weave is falling out. And I go, girl, that's not my weave. That's my hair. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. That had to be alarming. And so I was frustrated because I thought, oh, here we go. Another autoimmune disease type of thing. So oh. I go to my doctor and my doctor, uh, Dr. Bazard, he goes to the church that I work at, that I worked at. And so I'm explaining to him my symptoms, what's going on and all these different things. And he all of a sudden goes, Kristen, when did you go to El Salvador? And hmm. I'm thinking in my head, this is an odd question, but if I can get another doctor for the medical mission trip, cool. I'm, I'll pitch right. this right now. <laughs> Your service hat immediately went oh, on. Oh yeah, like, <laughs> cool you want to join next year and so I told him and then he's nodding he goes okay this makes sense I go what what do you mean hmm. he goes well Kristen there's a lot of different 
bacteria and viruses in other countries. He goes, I'm pretty sure you picked up a bacteria just looking at your scalp and things, but we're going to take a sample right now hmm. and I'm going to run it and we'll, we'll see. Takes a sample, goes in the back with his microscope and does things, comes out and he's like, yeah, you picked up a virus, uh, a bacteria in El Salvador and hmm. you're going to lose all of your hair. What? And so it was like, oh, okay. Well, at least now we have answers. <laughs> yeah. So my hair was all falling out there. I decided to shave the rest of it because it all was going to come out. And I was bald. And I actually had to preach that Saturday and Sunday. Oh. So I preached about it. And it was funny because the week or two weeks after I mean I was still wearing a bunch of like head wraps and things like that I wasn't quite comfortable that I was bald right and I remember a woman uh at church who was in the office and she came up to me and wanted me to know how inappropriate it was for me as a woman to leave my house and not have a wig on what? and went through all of this. And now mind you, she knew that I lost my hair uh, and, and how it came about and everything. And she still, still said that. And she still said that. And so oh, I told her I disagreed and I do not have to meet some standards of this patriarchal system that tells me as a woman that I have to wear a wig that's itchy, scratchy. And also wigs are expensive. They're super expensive. Super, super expensive. Like I found some good deals like on Amazon. But before that, I went to a wig shop and they were like $400, $500. I'm like, yeah, there's no way. It is ridiculous. So it was after that moment of this woman who was uh, being very patronizing and condescending to me, I decided I'm going to go bald, like almost everywhere. And so that's what I did is I am going to show up right now in all of who I am. And mm -hmm. I'm just going to be bald. Yeah. And so that's what I did. And I got comments. It's some very, again, showing the ignorance of people. Like I got comments of you're a lesbian, which also well, I don't even understand how that correlates. But again, homophobic. I mean, comment. people would just come up to you and say, you're a lesbian. Uh-huh. Who assumed <laughs> that because I was bald, that I was a lesbian. And that just brings, I just have like ragey feelings already in my oh, body. <laughs> That's as just... someone who has family members a part of the LGBTQ plus community, I was, we had a lot of conversations after that person, you know, several people made comments to me about it. Um, but as a family, we also joked around because I uh, called one of my family members and I'm explaining this and they go, you're not cool enough to be in our club. And I was like, <laughs> so we, we joked about it type of thing, but yeah, it was, it was homophobic comment. Never. Okay. Yeah appropriate but yes there was a standard of 
people making comments to me, people of, oh, you know, it's okay. You, you know, you still have a pretty face or something like, I was like, I don't understand these backhanded compliments. I know you're trying to, so it was just again, showing the, the normative of our mm -hmm. culture of beauty and standard, which made it even more important to me to go bald, right? Yeah. To yes. go against this culture and this system and also show my young people, this was a learning opportunity for the adults and the young people of show up mm -hmm. and God loves you exactly for who you are. Right. And I don't need to make an excuse. I don't, I'm just going to rock the ball book. So, but I mean, I did that at even the, the youth ministry conference and people didn't know, or it, it was like, I don't have to explain myself. Right. Yeah. Because whether I shave my head because I wanted to shave my head or whether there's something else going on, this is it. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong about it. It's just, it's just so frustrating to just the way that we continuously put uh, expectations and implications <laughs> onto people of, you know, what then the beauty standard that people have to meet or the way that we expect people to be. And I just, it continuously bothers me. And that's what, obviously one of the reasons why I'm doing what I do, but mm -hmm. my gosh, it's just, and the fact that I, I can't understand why people even have the gall <laughs> to be able to just say, let me just tell you the inner thoughts that I have right now about your personhood. Cause I feel like it's my duty to do that. Right. Yes. And also it's even more baffling to me, not baffling, but like, you know, I, I worked at a large church in Las Vegas, like the comments were coming from people who were church members and, you know, not that that's baffling, but it's like, okay, we really have to have conversation, more conversation of what is kind and how do we love our neighbor? Because mm -hmm. do you think telling me that I'm inappropriate for coming to work without a wig is loving your neighbor. And, and so all of those conversations, I think need to be had and questions need to be asked because mm -hmm. people are saying things that then if we ask them, is that loving my neighbor? It would be no, that is not loving my neighbor. Right. So exactly. I also wanted to bring in just because all around, as we are listening to you, you're just incredibly fascinating. Right? Let's just be real. <laughs> so the other thing that I was completely fascinated to learn about you is that you do bodybuilding competitions, yeah. which I also love uh, because my uncle who was a Lutheran minister also also did bodybuilding and I just find it to be fascinating so tell us about what drew you into bodybuilding and then what have you learned from you know and gained from that process and competitions and mm -hmm. you know like I feel like that it's interesting for me to you know to listen to when we talk about bodies and different things like this right like you've had this experience of people being just rude <laughs> There's no other way to say that around your body because it's not looking as a quote, typical 
woman as they should, which I just want to erase all of that. And then here you are in these body, body building competitions. So tell me more about that. Cause it's so fascinating. Yeah. So I do bikini bodybuilding mm-hmm. and I got into it really as a way of a coping mechanism of dealing with my autoimmune diseases. Right. Oh, yeah. And so uh, one of my autoimmune diseases is I have rheumatoid arthritis. Okay. And I want a preference that my flare-ups are currently not chronic and they are manageable. So I can do bikini bodybuilding right now. Whereas a decade ago, when I had chronic flare-ups, I would not have been able to do. So for me, it's working on my muscles, working on my strength, all the things that are limitations sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's a big motivator for me to try to get stronger, to try to do these things. And I grew up doing sports. So the competition aspect of it is me versus me. And I love competing yeah, and, and trying to grow and learning different things. And science fascinates me and the anatomy and physiology behind lifting, I think is wonderful. Plus as a woman, I love to lift let me lift all the heavy weights and go to the gym and what makes you feel like a bad, like whenever I've done any sort of, um, weights, like I, I will be the first to say, like, I'm not amazing with me. Like, let's go to the gym and let's do this. (laughs) But when I had been in a routine before of doing more weights, I remember walking out of there being like, dang, you know, like you just feel stronger and you feel like you can take things on more. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there was a, a, a time, you know, that the youth would joke around, but like, I mean, like I, a middle school kid, I could tell them like, eh, I could squat your body weight and then some easily. <laughs> and like <laughs> the kids also, knew. I will do that if you, <laughs> well, that'll be another story. I didn't do that. Wearing skinny jeans. Oh my God. It didn't work out so well. So <laughs> lesson learned, lesson learned. Don't get too cocky. Uh, so I got into bikini bodybuilding and honestly was never going to post about it on social media mm-hmm. because at some point I am, and I'm still in the discerning processing stage of do I go the deacon route? Do I go the pastor route? And so it has been looking at seminaries as I work full-time and what would be realistic for me and things like that. But (laughs) I had pastors tell me, you know, be careful with what you post. Mm -hmm. And I want to pause of, I don't think people realize like me working for a church I have to be careful about posting a photo of me in a swimsuit. Right. Okay. Yeah. Like there will be repercussions for me as a woman for posting a photo of me in a swimsuit, which to me was huge red flares. Of we have a church. And I mean, if you look at it too, of what women face, of cultural expectations, of having to cover up all of their body parts of being shamed. Oh, did you see what she wore? 
a little too short or did you and there's like even if you look at youth groups like i cannot stand dress codes cannot oh, yeah. stand them uh i really think it has damaging implications i think it's a whole patriarchal article thing oh, like i i think it's toxic and we perpetuate this culture and so what i realized i was not helping my young people by telling them and having all these conversations of you know show up be yourself like we do not believe in shaming of our bodies or but yet i wasn't willing to post a photo of me competing which was non-sexual at all because of repercussions that may happen to me for my work so i actually um called the assistant to the bishop jackie papel in the Grand Canyon Synod. She's wonderful. Shout out to Jackie, um, Reverend Jackie. And I talked to her about it and she's like, Kristen, what you're doing, there's nothing wrong with it. She goes, mm -hmm. I'm going to put it in your file right now that you were approved to do this. But I also want to know, like, that's the step I had to take, right? Just to make sure I was safe or okay to post an image of me in a bikini doing a, an athletic competition like that's what it really is and right. so we went through all that and then I, I did post a photo about it and it was one photo or two photos and there were people who disagreed and thought it was inappropriate so it was then conversations and dialogues right mm -hmm. of well what's inappropriate about it mm -hmm. And then having to challenge our own biases and perceptions that we thrust upon women mm -hmm. of cultural purity and unpacking that. And so that's one of the big motivators of me even sharing about bodybuilding and what I do is to counteract the cultural purity uh, that we have in the church setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember. So I did dancing. I was a dancer and I danced in church and I <laughs> had people come up to me or uh, people complain to the pastor at one of the places that I danced at just about wearing regular, like I was wearing a regular dance dress. It was a camisole one, mm -hmm. but they're just like, um, well, we, we could see a slight outline of her nipple. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, it's part of the body and I'm wearing a dance dress and this is a typical attire, you know, it's just like the, the amount of how people get so uncomfortable and mm -hmm. that goes along again with like, we're not talking about sexuality. And if we did, then this wouldn't be as much of an issue as it is. Right. Yep. But even with what you were saying with dress codes, you know, in, in my daughter's school, it's like no crop tops are allowed. We literally went to a store the other day to try to find her clothes. And I'm not joking. Every top was a crop top. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is stupid. And I hate it. And I get so frustrated with these messages, you know, that we give to young girls and women and young boys and men and policing the body and all these things it's well, just and because that's the thing our, our men are also receiving this message mm -hmm. uh in 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 every gender non-binary i mean 
Yes. So what are we telling everyone by these toxic messages of shame, of these messages of women have to lessen themselves, women are inappropriate if they're this standard, that standard, and also the confusion and mixed messages that we send women of, hey, you have to conform to this box, but also if you conform too much, then we're going to call you a prude or we're going to put you over here in this. And so we don't want you to be like that, but we don't want you to be over sexually too. So mm-hmm. it's really just toxic and damaging and unhealthy. You're right. Completely. So uh, we are running almost out of time. And so yeah. I wanted to ask you, as I ask every one of my guests, what story have you been reframing for yourself recently? I think the story that I am currently working on reframing is conversations to have in the church. Mm-hmm. And one of the projects that I'm working on is Seeking Justice for All, which is an anti-racism project. Mm. And there's a lot of conversations that are happening in the church and not happening in the church around racism. And so it's reframing this whole idea of being Christian nice. We're not being nice by not talking about it. We're actually Mm -hmm. being unkind and harmful to our neighbors by not talking about racism and hearing their stories. So the project Seeking Justice for All has it's a video curriculum where you will watch people share their stories about racism privilege, uh, things that they have done that have been harmful, myself included, right? Mm -hmm. Unintentionally, unknowingly, but still harmful, which is important why we have conversations about racism. And it's important to hear what our neighbor is saying. So that's one of the things that I'm working on reframing is how we have these conversations and stop being Christian nice, because it's actually more impolite that we're not having these conversations and caring for our neighbor in this way. Right. <clears throat> I think there's this, a big thing that I have been unpacking lately and I'll probably talk about a ton probably this year in the podcast, but I'm unpacking this essence of kind and good mm. because I feel so much too about, I feel like as a white Christian woman was taught that I had to be kind and I had to be good. Mm. But within those two messages, I think we lose the understanding then of, um, we lose our voice and we lose our instincts. Mm-hmm. And I think because of those things, then we uh, lose the ability at times to learn how to stand up for injustice because like also within that, then it means like not making a fuss, right? And so I think there's so much unlearning to do around what it means to be good and what does it mean to be nice, right? And to be able to just look at what does it mean to be whole? And then how do we learn how to, as you talked about loving our neighbor And is this being kind and being good and not making a fuss? Is that loving our neighbor? Yep. Like everything you just said. Yeah. And I think it, 
it's huge to realize um, that, right, as a, as a Christian woman, the being good concepts, mm-hmm. it's really toxic. I think the whole, the whole thing of good and bad is this arbitrary concept that we create, right? Yes. And it's almost like this stride for worthiness Yep. But it's never quite attainable. Mm-mm. So it's not attainable. No, not at not at all. And then it also creates this category of to me dehumanizing people by putting them in this bad category. Oh, like yeah. we are labeling someone that they are bad. Mm-hmm. And you can look at people experiencing homelessness as people put them in that category. Your expectation now is for them always to be bad. Right. So you're going in with already a perspective that people can never be anything but what you were already labeled them as. Yes. Yep. So. Well, I do believe that we're going to be doing more together at some point. I don't know yes. if you feel this, but <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, hope I put so. that in <laughs> put that in the beginning. So um, just thank you for spending time with me today. And if people want to know more about this project that you're working on, um, or I find a way to talk to you about anything. Is there a way that they can get a hold of you? Yeah, they can get a hold of me on social media and my email. And we are about to launch our website for Seeking Justice for All. We are hopefully going to have it available for congregational use starting in January. Right now we are in the works of making it a 501c3 nonprofit. And that's because we will be um, charging for the curriculum and then half of all the proceeds go towards helping different nonprofits who are already doing the work of anti-racism and the other half will go towards creating more video curriculum like around immigration and LGBTQ inclusiveness and different things like that. So it's an awesome, exciting thing. I'm excited for congregations and youth groups because it's both youth groups and adult curriculum that people will be able to utilize. Hmm. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. Awesome. Thank you. 